Hello everyone, and welcome to After Alexander. Episode 13, Heading West. You may have spotted from the name of our episode this week that our focus is definitively going to be shifting west for the next 18 years or so. Until Seleucus's death, we're mostly going to be focusing on the western successors, just as Antigonus had once done. There will be some major events within Seleucus's own kingdom as well, but for the most part we're going to be staying firmly in the Mediterranean sphere. Last time, I left all the remaining successors on tenterhooks following the division of the Antigonid Empire. Demetrius and Seleucus now have an alliance, sealed by the marriage of Seleucus to Demetrius's daughter Stratonike in 299, and Ptolemy, Lysimachus and Cassander are also allied. You might think that all of this is asking for trouble in a way that only the First World War will be able to understand. After all, there are now two opposing blocs facing one another, and there's conflict simmering in the air above. Demetrius would be the one to make the first move. With a powerful ally at his back, Demetrius now felt emboldened enough to eject Pleistarchus, Cassander's brother for those of you who don't remember, from his kingdomlet in Cilicia in 298. At the same time, he carried off a hoard of treasure from the city of Syinda. This treasure was, in fact, a remnant of the once mighty Achaemenid treasury, back in the days when they had still owned all of the land the Hellenistic states were now squabbling over like a gang of schoolchildren. At the same time as this, Seleucus conducted raids in Samaria. Now, you might expect that this would bring both sets of alliances crashing down on one another like a ton of bricks. However, you would be wrong. This is, in fact, because Cassander couldn't intervene to help his brother, despite the fact that he seems to have lodged some complaints with Cassander about his dethroning. This is for the simple reason that he was dying, he would definitely be dead by 297, and was in no fit state to help Plistarchus. This is also a handy opportunity to, for me to bring up that now it's essentially a waiting game. All the men who fought with Alexander were getting on a bit in years by now. If Alexander himself had still been alive, he would have been approaching his 60th birthday at this point. So basically, from now on, we're going to watch the original successors, the last men who knew Alexander personally, die until the last man is left standing but you'll find out who gets that honour in due course. Seleucus, meanwhile, used his old friendship with Ptolemy to get him to agree to a fresh marriage alliance, this time between Ptolemy's daughter and Demetrius. Although the two powers contested the region of Hollow Syria, the rulers do seem to have got on at a personal level, so a peace was arranged. It is also stated in the Livius article about the period that Ptolemy was overawed by the Seleucus-Demetrius alliance and not in a position to fight back, so he accepted a peace. Although I'm not a historian, both seem possible to me. As we've seen in previous episodes, Ptolemy was a cautious kind of person, as evidenced by the fact that he decided to hold on to Egypt once Perdiccas died way back in episode 2, instead of trying to go for the whole empire. Added to that, we've seen him shy away from fighting Antigonus before, due to false information telling him the cause was lost. There is, however, another factor to consider. The Antigonid dynasty was on the rise once again. 
Whereas immediately after Ipsus, Demetrius I had been powerless, now he occupied Pleistarchus's former territories in southeastern Anatolia. This rise acted to bring the former anti-Antigonid alliance back together again, in the face of the old threat rearing its head once again. To explain the threat that Demetrius posed more fully, we're going to have to hop over the Hellespont and into Greece, which we last left as a pro-Demetrius stronghold. This pro-Antigonid feeling had, however, begun to stray over the years. Athens, which we last saw building a navy for the Antigonids, had made peace with Cassander. This gave Demetrius a casus belli for invading Greece. He accordingly landed and began a siege of Athens in 296, and the city duly surrendered to him in 295. Instead of the previous Antigonid policy of autonomy, Demetrius installed three garrisons in the city and moved on to re-establish his authority in the Peloponnese in 294. However, his eye was actually on Macedon itself. Cassander's death, which I've seen listed as either 297 or 298 depending on the source, meant that his eldest son succeeded him as Philip IV in Macedon. However, two months after acceding to the throne, he died of natural causes. This meant that his two brothers, Alexander V and Antipater, divided the kingdom between them at the river Axios, with Antipater ruling in the west and Alexander in the east. Meanwhile, both men were under the control of their mother Thessalonica, presumably thrilled to wield a bit of political power of her own. This harmonious picture lasted for about five seconds before both of them started scrapping. In the fighting, Antipater even murdered his own mother, by now the final representative of the House of Argos, and thus the former royal line. Crucially, Alexander V felt vulnerable enough to ask for help from two men, Pyrrhus of Epirus and Demetrius. I might come back to Pyrrhus, and Epirus more generally, in a bonus episode, as I feel that it's been neglected a bit due to the main narrative simply shouting louder. For now, all you need to know is that he is the King of Epirus, the kingdom in the west of the Balkans, approximately where Albania is now. Pyrrhus invaded first in 294, managing to restore the balance of power between the two brothers. In return, he received the town of Ambracia, which became his new capital. And so, it wasn't until the problem was essentially settled from Alexander's point of view that Demetrius managed to extricate himself from the Peloponnese and head north. Alexander travelled to meet him, supposedly to thank him for his effort, but in actual fact plotting to have his powerful southern neighbour murdered. Sadly for him, his intriguing was discovered, and Alexander himself was killed. The Macedonian army that had been travelling down with Alexander V now declared Demetrius the new king of Macedon, which he used as a pretext to attack Antipater. This attack was so successful that Antipater fled to Lysimachus for help. So, let's have a look at Demetrius's position now. Although his possessions in Asia were largely abandoned and divided between the other successors in the east, he managed to conquer vast swathes of Greece and Macedon and make himself one of the powerful players on the board again. Pyrrhus tried to invade Macedon himself in 289, but was rebuffed and a peace was signed instead. Demetrius was now a powerful king with an army comparable in size to that of Alexander the Great years before, as well as the support of Greece and having a strong navy. It was his success that drove the other powers back into each other's arms again. 
Demetrius' success, however, also meant that a wedge had been driven between himself and Seleucus. Seleucus demanded that Demetrius sell him Cilicia, which Demetrius refused for obvious territorial reasons. Seleucus then insisted that he give over Sidon and Tyre on the Levantine coast, which Demetrius's garrisons were still occupying. This made sense from a Seleucid point of view. Sidon and Tyre were uncomfortably close to home, and a foreign power occupying them would have been bad news. However, the response that came back was unequivocal. Demetrius declared that even if he had to go through the humiliation of Ipsus 10,000 times over, he would not surrender the towns. The phrase he used is that he would never have Seleucus as a son-in-law on the terms of a mercenary, and you can see his point. Seleucus had forged an alliance with him, but Demetrius could argue that Seleucus was now demanding payment for the marriage alliance in the form of two coastal towns for that honour. Despite this proud reply, Seleucus was threatening. His new capital of Antioch on the Orontes allowed him to move both east and west, making him flexible in his responses. Added to that, in 292 he had installed his firstborn son Antiochus as co-monarch in the east, giving him control over all the territories east of the Euphrates. Added to the fact that this was a way for Antiochus to take his first political steps, as it were, it also allowed Seleucus to concentrate on the west, knowing that his son was dealing with eastern affairs. Antiochus's elevation was, significantly, also alongside his wife, who was declared queen in the east. We're going to get to her, and in fact to the coronation itself in time, but I'll mention now that her name, perhaps not coincidentally, is Stratonike. A plan now formed against Demetrius. Ptolemy agreed to send his navy into the Aegean, while Lysimachus and Pyrrhus would invade his domains from both directions, overwhelming him in a three-frontal assault. It's also during this time that Seleucus presumably quietly occupied Cilicia. Adding to all of Demetrius's troubles was a revolt which began in 288, with shockingly bad timing. Demetrius had been conscripting men into his armies, probably in case of just such an attack by the other powers, and although we don't know exactly what caused the uprising, this is speculated to be one of the factors. Demetrius essentially snapped at this point, and decided to go for a do-or-die attack on the east. He installed his son Antigonus II, Stratonike's brother, as ruler in Greece, and prepared to attack Anatolia. His hope was to distract Lysimachus with problems in his eastern domains, and prevent the noose from tightening around the Antigonid neck in Europe. In the first phase of his attack, his navy smashed Ptolemy's fleet, just as he'd done so long ago in Cyprus, meaning that he landed unopposed in Anatolia. However, Agathocles, Lysimachus' son, shadowed him and forced him into the interior of the peninsula after taking a few towns. It was perhaps at this point that, in a striking analogy to Alexander the Great, he prepared to march against the man who ruled over the vast domains of the east. He was perhaps expecting that his daughter, a Seleucid royal by marriage, would support him in his invasion. Perhaps he began to feel confident. He had relived his victories of old, and was imitating one of the greatest generals in history. Ideally, he could crush Seleucus, smash his way into the eastern satrapies, and gather an army there with which to come back stronger. This was a strategy which Eumenes had used against Demetrius' own father, the elder Antigonus, once before. Perhaps it could work again. However, 
his soldiers became restless, feeling that they had been lured away from their homes under false pretenses. His mercenaries were not keen on the idea of trekking off to foreign lands, while all the while Agathocles snapped at his heels and made it difficult to forage. Added to that, he lost men in the crossing of the Lycus River, which I'm sure was not a good sign to the people around him, while disease began to break out. He crossed the Taurus Mountains into Seleucus's domains and initially announced himself as a friend. Seleucus even seems to have ordered food to be brought to Demetrius. However, people we can perhaps describe as cooler heads in this scenario prevailed in the Seleucid lines, and he gathered an army to march on Demetrius. Demetrius then asked leave to be allowed to set himself up as a petty king in the mountains, or at least to spare him having to turn back into the waiting arms of Lysimachus. However, despite giving him leave to winter in his realm as he would have liked, Seleucus and Agathocles both bottled up the passes, penning Demetrius in Cilicia. This prompted Demetrius to start ravaging the countryside, which boosted morale in his army. Even now, the cause did not look lost. His reputation was still ponderous. In fact, Lysimachus offered to help Seleucus against Demetrius, but Seleucus declined, not knowing which of the two to be most afraid of. He seemed even cautious, in fact, to attack the now feral Demetrius, so perhaps, even now, they might claw it all back again. The killer blow came when he fell ill. Most of his soldiers quietly deserted him during his forty days of illness. Still, he continued to harry the countryside, making himself unpredictable to Seleucus's generals in his movements. Eventually, when the two sides ranged themselves up for conflict, Seleucus charismatically took off his helmet and invited Demetrius's men to desert. Immediately, Seleucus was acclaimed by Demetrius's troops, and the man himself was forced to flee with hopes of reaching the Aegean Sea. When he tried to reach the pass at the Amanus River, he and his small band of followers could see the campfires of Seleucus, and knew it was all over. Forced to surrender, he became a prisoner of the Seleucids. Seleucus may have hoped to use him against Lysimachus in the end, which was a real enough threat that Lysimachus offered him 2,000 talents to murder him, which Seleucus refused. In fact, he even wrote to his son Antiochus, now in Media, about his aim to restore Demetrius to the Macedonian throne. The idea was that Antiochus would plead for him to be released, which Seleucus would accept in a piece of stage-managed theatre designed to reflect the generosity of this act onto Antiochus. Despite all their planning, it would never get to that. Demetrius would drink himself to death in 283, still a prisoner. This, once again, rearranged the chessboard, Lysimachus and Pyrrhus were now direct opponents to succeed the Antigonids to the throne of Macedon, and, as I said at the beginning, Seleucus's eyes were now firmly turned westwards, with the aim of meddling in the western provinces, and maybe, just maybe, reuniting the whole empire under his own leadership. So, next time, we'll witness the fallout from Demetrius's final downfall, the intrigue in Lysimachus's domains, and the armies of Seleucus and Lysimachus marching against each other. This new round of squabbling in the West will also introduce a name that is set to come up much more later on in our story. That name is Ptolemy Caraunus, or Ptolemy the Lightning Bolt. In the meantime, thank you for listening.
For any questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show at afteralexpod at gmail.com. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. Thank you.